And let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive into this. This is a fascinating lesson tonight. Lord, thank you so much for the country in which we live, that we have the freedom to come and study your word, to discuss it, and to speak about it. Lord, I pray for our country. I pray for wisdom for our leaders. I pray for hearts to be turned toward you, to be about your business in this world. Guide us and guard us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you probably already know this, but I put it up every time. Those, that's the number to which you can text questions during the live class, and we'll answer as many of those as we can. We are talking about, let me skip ahead to this slide. Um, I just wanted to let you know that we are going to do the major prophets, and we're doing them at a pretty high level. I mean, four weeks on the four major prophets is quick. But the reason for doing this is I want you to see the chronology of these four major prophets because at the end of it, we're doing it close enough in time. You know, you could spend a year studying any one of these books. But in four weeks, you will see the flow of history, and you'll see God's message running through history, and I think you're going to make a lot of connections. The other connection I want you to make is to the New Testament. And so each week, we are showing you the connection to the gospel between these prophets. God's got an agenda in history in this time period. The other thing that we're not going to do, there are 12 minor prophets, 12 books in your Old Testament called minor prophets. They are also prophesying, and by that you know what I mean, not telling the future. They're basically spokespeople for God. God's given them messages. They're interwoven. Some of them are at the same time as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you can get a lesson, kind of maps and a description of their message and where the, how they fit in this at soespeak.com in the tales of the Nevi'im. Navi means prophet, which is spokesman, and Nevi'im is the plural. So the tales of the prophets. And so I just want to make sure you can put those together if you want to. All right. I want to start with a little bit of a chronology because the reason to do these four prophets in chronological order is to get you to see that there's intentionality in each prophet's message, but there's also intentionality running through the prophets. So just a little review before we dive into Ezekiel. This is circa 930 B.C., so I'll just put the date up there. 930 B.C., Solomon dies and the kingdom splits in half. You have the northern kingdom named called Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. I realize that's a little misleading for us because today the whole nation is called Israel. But when they had the brief civil war and split with 10 of the 12 tribes in the north, two of them in the south. Uh, in the south, the uh, capital was Jerusalem. In the northern the capital, basically, over time, is going to be Samaria. So this northern kingdom of Israel, fast forward now from 930 B.C. to the time of Christ, so move on forward 900 years, that's the area that's going to be called Samaria in the time of Jesus. Now, a lot happens in that 900 years, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. So you have the kingdom splits in two, and so you have a king in the north, Israel, a king in the south. Our first of our major prophets shows up a couple of hundred years after this. You still have the northern and southern kingdoms, but Isaiah is going to prophesy in the 700s. Let's move up and see what the world looks like. Well, in the 700s, the Assyrians 
are the dominant power in the north. We spoke, this is review, we've spoken about that. And they are invading the other great power, Egypt, down in the south. And in 722 BC, so it's a couple hundred years after the split, you don't see the nation of Israel on here anymore. It's just green on this map that I'm showing you. In other words, it's been conquered. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered that northern half called the nation of Israel and deported those Israelites. And they not only deported them, they scattered them. So they took the people in Israel and they put them all over. They scattered them around. Now, it was a brilliant move in a sense that, I mean, brutal, but brilliant in the sense that it's kind of hard to rebel when you're scattered all over and very few of you still live in the territory that you came from. And you know what they did? Other places they conquered, they brought some of those people and put them in that land of Israel. They reasoned that people would probably not rebel and die for land that wasn't their own. So they relocated everybody. Those 10 tribes in the nation of Israel, this is a side note, uh, this is where you get the idea of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. So are they lost? No, I'll tell you exactly what happened to them. They got deported by the Assyrians in 722. They spread them all out and settled them, and guess what they did? Started marrying local girls, car, house with two-car garage, soccer on Saturdays, golf on Sunday afternoons, and they assimilated into the population over hundreds of years. And so the 10 lost tribes of Israel, they didn't go anywhere, they just assimilated. And that's what happened to countless numbers of people in history that get conquered. They just go away. They, I mean, they intermarry, and by 100 years later, they're not... Israelites anymore. They're just people who live in that area. Does that make sense? They just assimilate into that area. Well, in Israel, you have a bunch of foreigners who've assimilated there. That's why 700 years later after this, in the time of Jesus, the Jews hate the Samaritans. Samaritans say, hey, we're Jews. And they go, no, you're not. 700 years ago, a bunch of you guys were foreigners. You all intermarried and you're just not pure Jews anymore. But this is where it started. Okay, that's not part of our story, that's just extra. All right, so then in 701 BC, Sennacherib happened to be the Assyrian king. He decides he's gonna go conquer Judah as well, the southern uh, kingdom. Well, that was the subject of the main subject of Isaiah's ministry. It's not the only thing Isaiah did, but it's important. So in Jerusalem is King Hezekiah, he's the king of Judah at that time, and Isaiah the prophet is there. Sennacherib comes and his armies surround Jerusalem and they pray to God and Isaiah said, Hezekiah, I'm going to prophesy, meaning I'm just going to tell you what God told me. God told me those guys will never enter this city. And sure enough, wake up the next morning and you know, 100, 185,000 of them are dead. And so Sennacherib says, okay, that's a sign. I'm out of here. And so he goes back, right? He's conquered a lot of the area, but he doesn't conquer Judah. And that's why on this map, it's not green. It's still independent. They're paying taxes to Assyria, but they haven't been conquered. So that's where our story of Isaiah ended, was with the southern uh, area of Judah and Isaiah's role in that. Let's fast forward a little bit from 701. Now let's go to the 600s, move about a, a hundred years later. And we met Jeremiah. What's happening at this time? Well, the Assyrians back in the north, 
the Babylonian Empire, right here, headquartered in Babylon, which is right by Baghdad, so basically in modern-day Iraq. But you can see from this map that the Babylonians have conquered the Assyrians and actually conquered a lot more territory. Well, Jeremiah the prophet comes from God and keeps speaking to the people in Judah. Remember, Israel, the northern nations, kind of conquered. And he says, you have worshipped idols. This is what we talked about in our last lesson. You've worshipped idols. You have rebelled against God. You put your trust in other things, and you're going to be destroyed. And sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, in 586, some of the textbooks you see, we'll call it 587, I'm going to say 586, uh, conquered Jerusalem. And they didn't just conquer Jerusalem. They decided, you guys are a pain in the neck. And they said, we're just going to destroy this whole place. And so they literally burnt the temple. They brought in engineers and pulled blocks off the walls. I mean, they just tore down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned every important building. I mean, they just flattened the place. Well, they basically had come twice. So in 597, they came and the king of Jerusalem said, wait, 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 just kidding, I'll pay the taxes. So they deported some important people over here. They took some of the important people, they took some of the rich people, some of the politicians. No, they left the politicians. And they took the important people and deported them. Daniel, in 597, uh, was taken back to Babylon. And you remember Daniel and his friends? Daniel's a young Israelite, and he's going to be trained to be a bureaucrat. And we'll talk about Daniel in our next lesson. But <clears throat> also, a guy named Ezekiel was taken to this uh, Kibar Canal near Babylon. In other words, they took several thousand of the, of the Israelites with them and said, hey, if you guys want these people to be safe, you keep paying those taxes. So in 597, that's what happened. And so they're in uh, exile in Babylon. Well, for about 11 years, they did keep paying the taxes, but then they stopped. And Jeremiah tells us what happened when Nebuchadnezzar comes, totally destroys Jerusalem. Now he takes almost all the rest of the people that are there, and they also go into exile. So that's Isaiah in the 700s. That's Jeremiah in the 600s to 586. And in this lesson, we're going to focus on Ezekiel. Ezekiel's entire ministry is here in exile. I mean, he lived in Judah for a while, but 597, he was taken away. And all the things we're going to talk about in this, his prophecies, his message from God are to the exiles in Babylon. So our scene changes, and our first uh, prophecy that he's going to get is before the destruction of Jerusalem. It's in 593. So 597, they're taken away. Jerusalem's still there. In 593, he's going to tell the exiles, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And sure enough, it is in 586. Okay? Those dates make sense? So we're going to go talk. We're going to basically go through some of the book of Ezekiel because I want to show you some of the themes and what's going on, but I wanted to set the stage. And that is we are now near Babylon with the Jewish exiles, and Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. So the book opens with the call of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 1 dates this, by the way. In the 30th year, fourth month, on the fifth day, 
Well, I was among the exiles by the Kibar River. In other words, I've been here since 597, it's now 593. So, been here almost five years with the exiles. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, who came in that time. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him, meaning the Lord gave him a message. Now, Ezekiel is one of the weirder prophets. God asks him to do some really strange things. Prophets oftentimes did a couple of things. One, they would relay messages from God. Well, the form of the messages to Ezekiel are visions. And right now he's about to get a vision and I'm gonna describe it to you. The other thing that Ezekiel did was God had him act out what was going to happen. When you look at the minor prophets, you'll see a lot of this as well. If you remember Hosea, for example, one of the 12 minor prophets, God said to him, because I don't want you to think prophecy is just speaking. I certainly don't want you to think prophecy is just predicting the future. It's basically giving a message, but sometimes it's acting it out. Hosea, remember God said to him, I want you to go marry a prostitute. He's like, seriously? God goes, yeah, that's part of the deal. He goes, this is my, part of my prophet job? He goes, this is part of your prophet job. And so he marries a prostitute and people ask him, Hosea, what are you doing? He goes, this is what God told me to do. You want to know what this means? Guess who you are? The prostitute, you know, and God, you have not been faithful to God. So you're going to see Ezekiel and the others act out a lot of prophecy as well. So right now, he's going to have a vision. Here's a great painting, by the way, of this vision by William Blake. So let me just tell you, I'll just kind of narrate the vision for you. He said, I looked and behold, there was a wind out of the north and there was a great cloud. And from the midst of it, I could see in the middle of this cloud and the lightning and the flashing, four living creatures. There's a picture of one of them. They're, they're standing like this in a square, right? So they're basically in a square. All their backs make a square with their wings touching. So he does a good job of painting, uh, picturing it there. So they're making a bit of a square. So the four living creatures, and in their appearance, they had a human likeness. But each one of them had four faces, and each one of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and they looked like calves' feet. And their wings touched one another. Now, as for the likeness of their face, their human faces, they looked like a human on one side, and then on the right side, like the face of a lion, and like an ox on the left side, and on the back, the face of an eagle. So a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle are their four faces that they look like. And as I looked at the living creatures, I also saw a wheel beside each one of the living creatures. And the appearance of the wheels was like gleaming metal, like a gleaming jewel. And all four of them looked the same and all four of them had a wheel. And the interesting thing about the wheels were they could go any direction without turning. They would go here, then they would just go this way since they were facing everywhere. And he describes how they would move with these wheels and they could go any direction that they wanted. Now, the strangest thing about the wheels is on the rims the, of all four wheels were full of eyes all around them. And then over the head of the living creatures, I saw an expanse that looked like 
diamonds, like crystals, over the top of them. And above that expanse over their heads, I saw what looked like a throne. Does this sound like the book of Revelation to you? It should. It sounds like Revelation 4, actually, a throne room scene. It's apocalyptic literature, meaning this is an apocalyptic vision. What does apocalyptic mean? Well, it's a certain style of very symbolic. In other words, do cherub, these are cherubim, a cherub. This is, a, this is an angel, these four creatures. And you're going to see four living creatures, by the way, in the book of Revelation. They're also cherubim. But you look at these creatures and you say, is that what angels really look like? Not necessarily. This is a vision that he saw that's telling you something. So apocalyptic visions are there, very symbolic, but they have a very specific meaning to them. Well, he said, I saw what looked like a throne, and on the throne was the likeness of a human. I mean, it looked like a human being, but... He was gleaming metal and just like the appearance of fire. He said, that's what I saw. And the, as the spirit would guide them, the cherubim would move. And above them on their throne was this likeness of a human on fire. And here's how it concludes. He says, this, well, I love this, this one of my favorite verses. He said, what did you just see? He said, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, you didn't say, I saw the Lord. I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, this was so awesome and I'm not even close, right, to actually seeing God. It was just amazing. And so let me interpret that vision just a little bit before we go on. I'll make a couple of points. This idea, and you're going to see the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle again. Okay, well, I'll try to remember to bring that up in Daniel, but you're also in, in the book of Revelation. So there's some connections here in these apocalyptic visions. But basically the way the Jews thought about this was those cherubim are representing the pinnacle of all creation. Think about it. The man is the pinnacle of God's creation, the highest thing that God created, intelligent. The lion was considered by the Jews, that's why this is a symbol, as being the fiercest, the king of all wild animals. The ox was considered the strongest and the most powerful of all domesticated animals. And the eagle was considered the king of all the birds of the air. And so you'll see in other apocalyptic literature, even outside the Bible, those four things being used to represent, okay, that's all the most powerful things in all of creation. And so these cherubim, in some sense, take on the authority over all of the created beings. The wheels with eyes around them, eyes in apocalyptic literature, we see this in the uh, book of Revelation, means knowledge. And so the idea that they have all these eyes means that it's the omniscience of God. It's all seeing. In the book of Revelation, you're going to see a creature covered with eyes. And the idea is, Omniscience. You're trying to tell me that this is all knowledge. You see everything. So it's representative of the omniscience of God. And then the throne is very similar to Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. In other words, this vision is very consistent. Interesting thing there uh, is John, in the book of Revelation, is having that vision in approximately 100 AD. Ezekiel is having this vision in 593 BC. They're 700 years apart in time. And yet you see these same uh, visions. I mean, God manifests himself in the same 
way. So then God says to him, son of man, and by the way, he calls him son of man 93 times in this book. Who else used that title, son of man? Jesus used that title all the time to refer to himself. He said, son of man, stand up on your feet and I'll speak to you because you know where Ezekiel is? Lying flat on his face, scared to death. Stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. By the way, in the Bible, I want you to look at this. Anytime anybody has the encounter that gets anywhere near God, you know what the reaction is? Fall on your face, complete awe before God. So stand up and I'll speak to you. And as he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation, to these exiles that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Jeremiah got this same message. He said, Jeremiah, you go talk to them. And I know they're not going to like this, but you be, you be courageous because I'm with you. He said, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, because they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. If you remember our story of Jeremiah, they tried to kill Jeremiah a couple of times. In other words, this was not an easy business to be in. But God told him the same thing. He said, I am with you. You're speaking my words, and so be bold. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. In other words, you be faithful and do what I tell you. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. So you're also going to see a scroll in Revelation, which is given to John to eat. And this scroll is given to him to eat and what's written on it. It's basically a message from God, but you already get cued. What kind of message is it? Is hi, I missed you guys? No, it's lament and mourning and woe. Guess what? You're in exile and it's your own fault. I mean, that's basically what he's saying here. So we're going to see this uh, vision of the scroll. Let's move on. And he said to me, son of man, eat what's before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. Now, this is a vision. Do you really think that the way God does this is eat your scroll and then you go speak? If so, I want a more edible Bible than this. You know, it's just not going to work for me. But it's a vision. But what, I mean, it makes perfect sense, the idea of, okay, in your vision, you're going to eat the words of God and then you're going to go speak them. Well, 2,500 years later, we understand that. I mean, that's obviously symbolic. What it means is God is giving you a message and your job is to go speak it. And the, the metaphor or the vision is to eat the scroll with the writing on it. And so he said, eat the scroll, fill your stomach. So I ate it, it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said, then said to me, son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak to them. Then the spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. The sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. Then the spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kibar River and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days completely overwhelmed. This is the calling of Ezekiel. 
He sees this vision while he's one of the exiles and he gets his commission to go speak these words. And his reaction is he sat for seven days completely overwhelmed and mourning. So he knows he has a commission from God. He knows this is not going to be an easy commission from God to do. So what I would like to do is... uh, and. Text questions, because I'm going to hit, if you want to, I'm going to hit a couple of big themes. I mean, there are a lot of chapters in this book, but basically, the first 32 chapters or so of this book are the message on that scroll. And guess what? It's a real downer. It's a message of judgment. It's God saying to them, the reality of judgment is here. Is Jerusalem's going to be destroyed? And this is because you have rebelled against me. You have gone after idols. You have put your trust in other things, and they have let you down. So you see the reality of judgment. And then I want to tell you a story near the end of the book where you see the reality of hope. And those are the two messages, the two great themes that run through Ezekiel. Well, watch what he has to do first. At the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them a warning from me. He says, when I say to a wicked man, you will surely die and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, and I'll hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin, and he does not sin, he will live because he took the warning, and you will have saved yourself. This is one of the great themes in this book that also connects it to the New Testament. So I want to talk about this idea of being a watchman. So what is Ezekiel's job? His job is to go speak God's word to the Israelites. Is his job to make sure they do what God says? No, it's not. What God says to him is your job is to go warn them. Your job is to go speak the truth I'm giving you to them. If you don't speak it to them, I'm going to hold you accountable as well as them. But if you speak and they don't listen, you have done what I've asked you to do. You are a watchman. Watchmen in those days were people who stayed up all night, you know, the hours of the watch in the night, and they would typically be on the wall of the city and they'd be looking for trouble. And they would cry out as a warning if there was trouble or if an enemy were coming or whatever. They would warn. And that's what he's saying. You are my watchman. And your job is to warn the Israelites. Your job is to take my message to them couple of interesting applications for us. That's exactly what we are. You know, my thesis in this is that these prophets are the template for us as Christians. We also have received a message from God. We've received salvation from God, and he's given us this good news, and he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. In other words, we have been given a task. What's our task? To go speak God's truth is the truth of his love and compassion, the truth of his judgment. In other words, the truth about Jesus Christ and this hope, this opportunity to be reconciled to God. He said, you go tell them that. And so we too are watchmen. 
And in the New Testament, you won't see this language, but you'll see this exact idea, is that I sent you to them. Now, here's the, here's the trap that we sometimes fall into. We sometimes think that it's up to us to convince people to follow Jesus Christ. We sometimes think that, hey, if I explain this well enough, if I have enough laser light shows, if we put enough fog in the room on Sunday morning and we turn the guitars up louder, okay, I'm kind of joking here, but my point is, is if we do a really good job, well, they'll follow Jesus, and if they don't follow Jesus, I guess we just didn't do a very good job. Now, on the one hand, that's not right, is it? That's not what he tells Ezekiel. He says, you go speak the truth, and I will hold them accountable for that. Now, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that, you know, well, let's just send everybody an email and let's go play golf. You know, we, we need to go out there and care and get involved with people, but it's not on our shoulders. Only God can save people. It's not on our ability any more than it was on Jeremiah's ability. We are prophets like that. But here is what we are required to do is we are required to warn them, which means we're required to speak the whole counsel of God. In Acts chapter 20, skipping to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, on his way to Rome, and he's, going to, he's a prisoner, and he stops on the coast of Turkey, and the elders from the church in Ephesus, he'd spent a couple of years in Ephesus, he's really close to them, but the elders of that church come down and meet him on the beach. And he gives them a speech, and he says, I don't think I'll ever see you guys again. And they weep together, you know, and they, they're just so close. But Paul gives a speech, and one of the things he says is this, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I want you to hear this right here. In other words, he says, if you don't warn him, I will hold you accountable for his blood. Paul says, I declare today that I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have shared with you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I told you everything that God told me to tell you. Does that make sense? That's Paul thinking about this. Paul sees his role, just as I want you to see your role the same way, as we are here to give the whole counsel of God in a loving, compassionate way to this world. So our job is not to save people. It's not to be so good that, man, you, you got to believe in Jesus. This is the only way to go. And if I do a good job, you will. But it is to share the whole counsel of God. We, these prophets are models for what we're about as well. So this idea of a watchman in Ezekiel's time very much informs us. So as you read the book of Ezekiel, which I recommend you do, some of it will be hard to understand, but with this background, I think a lot of this you're going to go, okay, I, I know what's going on here. But you're going to see him go through a lot of hardship. Read the Apostle Paul, went through a lot of hardship, and yet they were both faithful to do what God told them to do. That's all that God requires of you and me, is to be faithful what he told us to do. Well, so God says, you're my watchman, here's your first job. Now, son of man, I want you to take a clay tablet, a brick, put it in front of you and draw on it a picture of the city of Jerusalem. You're like, arts and crafts, really? Yes, draw a picture of the city of Jerusalem, then lay siege to it. You know, build some little siege ramps up beside it and build a ramp up to it. Put some camps with some army men all around it. I mean, yeah, seriously, this is what he's doing. He says, you do that, then take an iron pan and place it like an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. It will be assigned to the house of Israel. Can't you just see this? He's like moving his army men up, pew, 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 you know, shoot, shoot, you know, whatever. He's playing this out and people go, 
Either Ezekiel's crazy or God's told him to tell us something in a weird way. And that's exactly what. He says, this is what is happening. Remember, there in Babylon, he said, in a few years, this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. God is telling you that Jerusalem is going to be besieged like this, and it's going to be destroyed. And so you kind of see some of the uniqueness of this. Well, why is it going to be destroyed? He said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So when people come around going, Ezekiel, have you lost your mind? He goes, well, now that I have your attention, here's what God wants to say to you. This is Jerusalem. Which, I, which God says, I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees even more than the nations around her. She's my people, and she's worse than the nations around her. You have not conformed to the standards. You have even conformed to the standards of, of the nation around you. In other words, you're not even as good as your neighbors. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. That's another verse that's not on many coffee cups at Mardell's, okay? <laughs> I myself am against you, and I will punish you in the sight of the nations because all of your detestable idols I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children, children will eat their fathers. Okay, this is kind of gruesome, but the accounts of the siege of Jerusalem, remember, it gets besieged for a little over two years meaning they, the army comes, Babylonian army comes around it and starves them out. And the accounts of that are horrific, of the suffering and disease and the lack of food. He said, Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and your detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. Interesting thing here. Uh, this is a side note too. Okay, fast forward to the New Testament. The word grace means favor. In other words, uh, it's sort of like having, I don't know if you ever had anybody like this, but when I was a young uh, executive and I started, you know, it was my first job as, as an executive and I went in and there was just this guy who's pretty high up in the company and he just really treated me well. I mean, but I don't know why. I never done any favors for him. I didn't know him. It's like he just sort of liked me for no reason. And so when I would goof up, he would sort of make it work out okay while I was kind of learning. And he showed me some things. And I, I thought, why are you doing this for me? I mean, this is, you're way up here and I'm way down here. It was favor. It was just unmerited favor. In other words, it's just a beneficial attitude. That's what the word grace means. And so you get this idea of God as, withdrawing his favor. It's a horrible thing when God withdraws his grace. And I don't know that we appreciate how much that we literally are just bathed in God's grace. He says, so I'm going to withdraw my favor from you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine. By the way, this really worked out to be pretty true. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls, and a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword, meaning about a third of them are going to be captured and carted away. So he's forecasting what's going to happen with the siege, and he's telling you why. Why is the judgment of God coming on Jerusalem? Because you have put your trust in these idols, and they are going to fail you. You had a covenant with me, with Hosea. It's like he said, we were married. I mean, that's, a, that's the metaphor that he's using. And you just went off 
after a bunch of other, uh, bunch of other lovers, I mean, a lo- bunch of other idols. He's using that metaphor to say, you have rebelled, you have left me, and this is the consequence of it. So God's wrath, is, his judgment is coming on them. So he's gonna talk to them about the reality of judgment, and he's gonna talk to them about the reality of hope. So our next verse, move forward just a little bit. The word of the Lord came to me. Now, here's what the people are saying to uh, to Ezekiel. The people are saying, okay, I hear you. Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed. We don't have anywhere to go home to. Things are looking really bleak, but you need to tell God, this is not our fault. In other words, we were perfectly happy to be faithful. It was our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers. We're being punished because of what they did. Now, you can identify with this. You just don't know that you can identify with this. In other words, one of these days, somebody's going to wake up and go, oh, my goodness, our national debt is so high, mathematics doesn't make a number that big. You know, it's like, whoa, it exploded. And you're going to say, right, and we say this is like, Look what the generations before left to us. They left us this big problem. Well, that's what they were saying. They're saying, hey, this is not fair. Ezekiel, you need to let him know that uh, that was what our grandfathers did. And so here's what God replies. He said, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You guys ever heard that saying? What it says is, is like the fathers ate sour grapes, ooh, made their mouth pucker up, but instead of their mouth, it made their kid's mouth pucker up. In other words, what they're saying, that proverb just means our fathers failed and rebelled, and now we're going to take the punishment for it. And God said, let that that proverb not be said anymore. You will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. He says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. This is interesting connection, by the way, to the New Testament too, because If you think about it, in the New Testament, it's given that each one of us will give an account to God. This is true then, and it's very true in the New Testament. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he's committed, keeps my decrees, he will surely live. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. This is beautiful. This is a forecast, by the way, of the gospel. He says everybody will stand on whether or not they have sinned. It's not what your father did. It's what you're going to do. Are you faithful? He says, and if you have been wicked, which you have, he says, if you will turn from that, you will be spared. You see the idea of repentance, and you see the idea of God's grace, his favor coming back. Because, he says in verse 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord, rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Now this is really interesting because here comes a glimmer of hope. They all stand under a death sentence. Every single one of them rebelled against God. But he said, listen, this is what's going to happen. This is justice. This is judgment. But I take no pleasure in it. Am I not thrilled when someone turns? Think about what Jesus said. Jesus said, the angels in heaven throw a party. They sing when one sinner comes back. In the book of Peter, it says, for God wants everybody to be saved. In other words, God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but it most certainly will happen. And so you see the glimmer of hope starting to come in, but you see the idea of repentance coming with it because the reality of judgment. Then I want to show you, this is a 
this is a sad piece. I, I thought about whether to put this in or not, but this is one of the hard things about being a prophet. And the reason I put this in is I've told you that we are modern-day prophets, I mean, in the sense that we are entrusted with a message to go give, and there are hard things that happen. Uh, this is one of those, uh, it's like a really sad part of this book. The word of the Lord came to me, and he said, Son of man, with one blow, I am about to take away from you the delight of your eyes, because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and that is the delight of God's eyes. I'm going to take away from you the delight of your eyes, but I don't want you to lament or weep or mourn. I want you to groan quietly. Do not mourn. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. The next morning I did as I had been commanded. Then the people asked me, won't you tell us what these things mean? And I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm about to destroy my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes. The sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword, and you will do as I have done. You will not cover your face, you will not mourn. You will keep your turbans on your head and your sandals on your feet. Ezekiel will be assigned to you. You will do just as he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. There's also a forecasting here as well, in the sense that Ezekiel loses his wife, at least temporarily, because we know that there is more, and you'll see that here in a minute, that there is more than just life on this earth. But you're going to fast forward and you're going to see God give up his most precious thing. His own son will be willingly given for us. And so I just want you to see how much of what's happening here in 593 BC that is so forecasting the gospel. In other words, there's a story going on here about Israel and their purpose in the world, but on top of that story is also a second story that says, you're going to see this happen again, and when you do, I want you to make this connection. And then the, the really great hope, this is a really famous story in Ezekiel, and this, this has a rich amount of hope in it. Listen to this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, it's out of chapter 37, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. And this valley was full of bones. And he led me back and forth, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer to that. Because Ezekiel's thinking, uh-uh, not even zombies are coming out of this. I mean, they're too far gone. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. In other words, speak, be my spokesman, and say this, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I hope you're thinking New Testament. I mean, think about this. You've got dry bones, you've got dead bodies. Think Ephesians chapter 2. Here's how it goes. As for you, talking to all the people in our age, or in the New Testament now, you were dead in your trespasses and your sin when you used to walk in the way of this world. In other words, you're saying you were dead men walking. You're at the end of what you were chasing is nothing but dry bones. And here comes Jesus to speak the word of God to you. So think about both of these when I'm saying this. Prophesy to these bones and say, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. 
I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put ruach, breath, in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What is a great metaphor used in the New Testament about the gospel? You know, dead come to life. You are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. I want you to see the gospel in this story. He's talking to Israel about you're going to come out of exile and you think you're just you're dead men. You're just living out your life here in exile. God is going to bring you back to life. But he's also looking forward to the cosmic story here. And so he says, prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, or to the wind, that probably better translation there, prophesy to the wind. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I did, and I preached to them. I preached to some dead audiences, but nothing like this before. <laughs> then he said, son of man, these bones are the house of Israel. And he said, they came to life. They stood on their feet. And sure enough, they came to life with flesh and blood and tendons and everything. He said, this is the house of Israel. Our bones are dried up is what they think, and our hope is gone. We're cut off. We're just dead men waiting to die. Therefore, prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to open your graves. I'm going to bring you out of your graves. You think in New Testament now, right? I'm going to bring you out of your graves. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it. So you see him speaking to Israel, saying, you are going to return. And sure enough, they will next week. So they got seven more days in exile. But we're going to bring them back next week. But this is the New Testament. This is the gospel happening in front of your eyes. And I want you to see those connections. So let me pause and see what questions we have. Well, while you're talking about the New Testament, can you talk a little bit more about why Ezekiel and Jesus are both called Son of Man? Why are Ezekiel and Jesus both called the Son of Man? Well, first of all, in uh, Jewish Bibles, by the way, uh, I mean like Jewish Bibles translated by Jewish scholars, and this is a good translation, uh, Son of Man is translated human being. And that's kind of what it means, like a son of Adam, a son of a human being, and so you're a human being. Christians understand this to have more symbolic uh, saying to it because Jesus used it. So you read the Jewish version, it'll just say, hey, human being, go speak to these people. Literally, it's son of man, but that's not a bad translation. So this idea of son of man emphasizes your humanness versus mine. You notice how often in Ezekiel, even in these verses, the sovereign Lord, the sovereignty of God, in other words, I'm God, you're not, right? I'm God, I'm sovereign. I, all of this moves at my command. The sovereignty of God and the Son of Man is a contrast to that. I think Jesus uses it to emphasize his humanity in some sense, but I cannot, I cannot get past the idea that there's not an interesting little connection here. I mean, as you see Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, you think to yourself, I've read that somewhere, Ezekiel. Oh, wonder what was Ezekiel's message. Oh, my goodness. You start reading this and you go, oh, my goodness, this is this is basically telling me what Jesus is going to do. And so I think Jesus is very clever in saying, you know, kind of dropping hints. Like, you know, the Son of Man's going to do this. Who's the Son of Man? Ezekiel was the Son of Man. Wait a minute. Are, are you trying to tell us something here? I think Jesus is just really brilliant. So I think that's part of it, too. 
Do you think the translation differences is part of the reason that the Jewish people don't recognize the New Testament when they read Ezekiel the way we do? Do I think the translation difference is partly because of trying to avoid the significance that Christians put on it? I do believe so. I mean, I couldn't speak authoritatively to that, but I do, and, and I understand that. If you think back in time, the conflict between Jewish and Christians throughout the centuries, some of it natural, some of it shameful. You know, I just shameful. Should not have happened. You should not have been treated the way Christians have treated them at times in history. But there is this idea as Jews to want to maintain your own identity and not get assimilated into Christianity. In other words, we don't believe, they would say, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they believe various other things. That's another story for another day. But we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And you guys are really making a big deal about this son of man thing. And so we're going to translate it human being. I, can I say that's why they did it? I don't know. But I do think there's, there's no doubt that there's an attempt to distance yourself. By the way, we're going to talk about Daniel next week. He's the fourth of the major prophets. He's not a major prophet in the Jewish Bible. And part of the reason for that is Christians have looked at Daniel and seen that as absolutely messianic, absolutely pointing to Jesus. And Jews do not accept that connection. They want to understand Daniel in a different way. So Christians hold Daniel up to a very high level of prophecy, and Jews not so much, the Jewish Bible not so much. So I do think that's a, a factor, but I mean, with all respect, I understand that. How does the current state of the world compare to Israel during the time of Ezekiel? The current state of the world compared to the state of Israel in that time. Well, it, just a little bit of history. This is interesting, that connection, because you realize 586 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed, the Jews go into exile. They get to come back, you keep reading in here and you read about Ezra and Nehemiah and a couple of the minor prophets are gonna be prophesying when they come back. We're gonna stop after Daniel and Daniel's gonna send them back, right? And the story goes on, we're just gonna stop this series there because we've gone through the whole cycle right there. But they do get to come back and they live in that land. But then in the time of Jesus, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, Jerusalem is destroyed again by the Romans in 70 AD. In other words, and it has never, it wasn't rebuilt after that. And the Jews were effectively in exile all the way till 1947. So you see this playing out a second time, if you will. So Israel, Israelites today, looking at the history of their people, believe they've spent a lot of time in exile, meaning away from Jerusalem. So in 1947, after World War II, getting the nation of Israel and having Jews able to come back there to their homeland is like a coming back from exile. So Israel today, feels like she has been in exile for a long time, you know, 1900 years, right? But now is back, sort of like the after Daniel story. So there are some interesting parallels. When you go to the New Testament, then and you get into the book of Revelation, then a lot of people wanna take the new Israel where they are and the new Jerusalem and weave that into God's end time plans. But that's another series. So good question. Well, the last thing I really want to do with this is I want to just connect it a little bit. I'm going to go to the book of Romans, which, by the way, I think that's what our fall series in here will be. 
book of Romans is sort of like what every Christian really needs to understand. Okay, this is a paid commercial. All right, so, but I'm just really excited about this. So basically, when Paul writes the book of Romans, he's never been to Rome. And he hears there are Christians there. And he wants to go to Rome. But he hasn't, he's not able to go. So he writes this long letter. I mean, it's just a big old letter. And he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome who he's never met. And he tells them the most important things they need to know. I think we ought to see what Paul thought was the most important things that Christians needed to know. So we're going to do the book of Romans. Okay, end of commercial. Back to the story. All right, so I just want to read you a few things from Romans as we follow through this. And I want you to think about Israel's story. I want you to think about Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I want you to think about judgment and God's wrath, the rebelliousness of Israel, and yet the hope that if you turn, God will bring you back. So Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is how the gospel starts. There's no lovey-dovey stuff here. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. It goes on and said, because they did not acknowledge God, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God for idols. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. We'll talk about those in the series. That could be really controversial. God gave them up to a debased mind. In other words, the judgment of God has come upon all of humanity because we all have turned away to idols. Romans 3.23, every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so it begins with judgment. The gospel begins with judgment. What's Ezekiel's message? It says, let me just tell you why things aren't going to work out for you. You're being judged for your rebelliousness against God. Then, however, you get this glimmer of hope. He says, you know, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's in chapter uh, 6. Chapter 5, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. All who turn repent and trust in Christ instead of all the idols can live. This is exactly what Ezekiel's telling them. The whole point of the dry bones is if you will turn from your wickedness, even when you are so dead your bones are dry and bleached, I can bring you to life. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a powerfully message of powerful hope. The judgment is true, but hope is real. That's kind of the message of the gospel. Just think about what you know about the New Testament. This is all going to dovetail very nicely. But if you just think about Romans itself, that's the way Paul starts by telling the gospel. Every one of us is under a death sentence of God's wrath. We all deserve judgment, and that only ends in death. But you know what? Because God loved us so much, he made a way so that if we will turn to him and trust in Christ, we too, like the dead bones, can be brought back to walk in newness of life. That's also out of... Romans. Does that make sense? I just wanted you to see that the gospel is being foreshadowed. I mean, think about how cool this is. Think about how all that time before God is, Israel is going through all of these real historical events. God is sending messengers. Nation is toppling nation. And, uh, you know, all these things are happening. And yet God is working in it 
with Israel, and all the time he's doing that, he's forecasting what he's going to do in Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons it's important for us to read these prophets and to understand that is because once you see that, you, your vision of God goes from God is good to God is sovereign and really good. Does that make sense? I want us to see that our role as modern-day prophets, we stand in a long tradition of what God's been doing, and God has entrusted us with this good message, and that's what we need to do with it. So the judgment of God, the hope of God, so we're going to leave the Israelites in Babylon. They're going to actually be there about 70 years, but we're going to leave them seven days. And so next time, we're going to go to the fourth of the major prophets, a young man. While Ezekiel's prophesying, he's a young man off in Babylon College, you know, Babylon Business College. And he and his buddies are being taught how to become executives running the government. They're going to be bureaucrats in Babylon running the empire. And so he is going to see long, Ezekiel's going to die, Daniel is going to get older, but he is going to see the exiles get to go back. So that's what we're going to do next week. I'll see you guys then.